Well, good morning, everyone. As you know, we're going through a series here at Christ Community Church on emotions, and so I've been doing a little bit of research ahead of time, a bunch of books, as I talked about last week, even watching a film or two, and I got a chance to watch a movie that's appropriate for this morning's topic, which is anger, and the movie was Anger Management, starring Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson. Now, it's a mediocre movie. Well, personally, I think it's a great movie because I love Adam Sandler, and who doesn't love Jack Nicholson? My wife says it's a mediocre movie, but there's this great line in the film. Jack Nicholson plays the anger management therapist, and he says something so insightful. He says, anger, and, and you know Jack Nicholson, he's got that way about him, so I'm not even going to try to mimic him, but he says, anger is the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty insightful. Anger is the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it, and it's true. Anger is just simply everywhere, and we all struggle with it. Now, just so you know, your pastor is not getting his material from Adam Sandler movies. Okay, so that's about all I got from that movie was that one line. But I have been doing a lot of research and reading, getting into God's Word, and reading some books on anger that I think are really helpful, and I want to recommend some of them to you. They're actually at the bottom of your bulletin. Uh, this book, Good and Angry by David Powelson, Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. And then this is uh, anger in our um, devotional series. So it's a 31-day devotional every day targeting the issue of anger from a biblical perspective. We have these on the book spot. So just for today, don't, don't buy them because I want people to be able to see them, but they are there so you can take a snapshot of them and go on Amazon or they're at the bottom of your bulletin. You can you know, buy them from Amazon just looking at the picture of it there. Um, but one thing about anger, well, actually, in reading these books and actually thinking about it, you realize every single one of us in this room know at least six things about people and anger that are just universally true. Now, you don't need to write these down because it's not really the core of the message, nor is it something that, if you think about it, you, you just know this yourself. So, so number one, we all get angry, okay? The, not, not rocket science here. We all get angry. We could start this like an anger management therapy. We could introduce our names and say, hi, my name is Rick, and I'm an anger addict. That, this is universally true. We all get angry. Number two, sometimes our anger is justified, right? Number two, sometimes our anger is justified. Number three, most times our anger is not, right? And most times our anger is not justified. And even in the rare instance when it is, we blow it all out of proportion, don't we? We just blow our lids. So sometimes our anger is justified. Number three, most times our anger is not. And even if it is, we blow it way out of proportion. Number four, right or wrong, whether your anger was right or wrong, we all tend to hold on to our anger a lot longer than we ought to, right? Number five, we actually don't get angry about the things we ought to get angry about. Now, that's something that we don't think about. When we, when we think about having an anger problem, that's not what people tend to think. But actually, the problem is we don't care enough to care. And strange as it might sound, the actual absence of appropriate anger is itself an anger problem. You just have to realize that. And six and finally, when it comes to anger in people, change is just hard. Right? I think those six things are universally true of every person in every place. It doesn't matter what culture or background you come from. Those six things we all just know, and we think about, reflect on anger in people, those things to be universally true. 
Now, last week, I talked about the two broad views in the study of emotions, and I said that there are two broad views. One's the non-cognitive view that views emotions as just something raw, kind of a holdover from our evolution kind of a thing. And I said that, that that's a foolish understanding, quite frankly. But the cognitive view, that our emotions are rooted in beliefs and standards and values and assessments we make about life, Thankfully, when it comes to anger, that is starting to make good headway in, in, that, in the literature. Now, it still may be the case if you see a psychiatrist or something, they might prescribe you medications like Prozac or Celexa or Zoloft because there is a physiological component to our anger. We talked about that last week. We are embodied souls, right? So what happens in our souls is going to affect our bodies and vice versa. Or if you seek some kind of anger therapy, uh, you might be diagnosed, you might be told you are suffering from a form of an anger disorder, and there's a lot of them out there. Probably my favorites, because <laughs> they're my favorites because they sound really scientific and explanatory, and they have these really long titles, but if you actually read the description, you're just like, eh, not quite. So, for example, intermittent explosive disorder, right? Otherwise known as an IED, right? Not the, not the improvised explosive disorder, but intermittent explosive disorder is where you just lose your top for some unknown reason. That's my favorite. My, my, my real favorite, I got introduced to in the 1990s when I worked for LA County Family Services, uh, defi oppositional defiant disorder. Basically working with kids who don't want to listen to me. That, that's what they were struggling with. Oppositional defiance disorder. And then here's one that is real, it's called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. I don't even, okay, you're just grumpy, basically. Is that, that's the idea. The point is, we have all of these disorders, if you read the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And, and, and what the idea is that you suffer from a disorder that you kind of get in the same way you might get the common cold or chicken pox. You are suffering from that thing. Very interesting views out there. Right now, if you actually go to some kind of therapy for anger problems, you might get a combination of medication or anger management therapy. If you read the literature, the therapies suffer from two broad problems. Half of the therapies out there will merely teach you techniques for maintaining a degree of detachment so that you can keep your cool amidst the irritants of life. And so you're familiar with these kinds of things. Breathing techniques. Right, counting to 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, that kind of thing. A calm key word, groomsfarba, groomsfarba, you repeat it over and over again. Or be aware of the gut in your, the rock in your gut, right? There's a physiological reaction. And if you're attuned to yourself and you start to get angry or anxious, you're aware of that. There's this kind of feeling we call it the, the, the rock in your gut, right? Now, these are good, but they are incomplete, aren't they? I mean, I'd much rather you use a calm keyword or count to 10 than just blow your top with a bunch of expletives and take a flamethrower to all the relationships in the room. That's, I'd rather you kind of breathe and do that kind of thing. But the problem is this. If the whole goal is to keep your cool and to remain somewhat detached, you're really not listening to anger. Because if we really think about it here, and I know the challenge is that when we talk about anger, you have all these illustrations and examples in your own life, people being angry with you, you being angry. But if you just stop and think about it, all those myths, anger's trying to do something. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit more. Likewise, the other half of the literature teaches the opposite philosophy. It urges you to embrace your anger, to own your anger. It's called the assertive anger philosophy. 
Stand up for yourself. You have rights. Be empowered. Speak truth to power. Speak truth to power kind of thing, right? Now, what this half of the literature gets is that anger is an emotion that's trying to get us to fix something that's gone wrong, right? It's a feeling we have that something's wrong, we got to change it. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we talked about feelings are not self-justifying. In other words, just because you feel something doesn't mean it's okay to be you feeling that, right? That was the error of the emotionalists. Just because you are angry, it doesn't follow from that that you have a right to be angry or a legitimate reason to be angry. You get, you get what I'm saying, right? And we do live in a culture where everyone is angry. But very few people are stopping to ask real honest questions. Do you actually have a right to be angry, and is it a legitimate anger? Neither medications nor the literature on anger management therapy actually get to the essence of what anger is in its isness, in its oughtness. Right? That's the problem. And because of that, you won't really understand why you get angry, or the explanations will be very superficial. More importantly, you won't understand how to change. More importantly, you won't understand how anger itself actually can be a very good thing. And from a biblical perspective, part of the way God made us. So this morning, I want us to think carefully, I want us to think biblically about a topic that we all struggle with, and that is our anger. We're going to do that by asking and answering three questions. Here they are. What is anger? Why do we get angry? And how should we be angry? Now, to be clear, we're, as we ask and answer each question, we're going to learn something about this topic, but it's not until we ask and answer all three questions that we'll have kind of a full orbed understanding of this phenomena of anger. Okay, so I guess what I'm saying that is that every question is going to build on itself, but really the final conclusion comes from answering all three. Okay? That's where we're heading this morning. So, Let's start with the first one. What is anger? Anger is the emotion of justice. It is the agent of mercy and the guardian of all that is right, good, and beautiful. Said no one who ever met an angry person, right? Now, that's the last thing you would think of when you think of anger. When you think of anger, if I were to ask you, the adjectives you threw out there would be explosive, painful, hurtful toxic, ruinous, right? That, that's probably your initial response. If you thought about it, you'd probably say, there's a part of it that might be cathartic, like a release, uh, honest, authentic, sometimes necessary. Those are probably a fair assessment of saying that. The reality is, this emotion is so diverse that it actually, both this description and the ones I just gave are both appropriate to describe what anger is. Put more simply, anger is an emotional response to perceived wrongs. That, that's something that the literature, I think they, 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 they hit it spot on here. Anger is an emotional response to perceived wrongs. It's a very complex human emotion. On the one hand, there's this yearning for justice, a demand for mercy, a demand for that which is right, but it's mixed in with pride and self-righteousness and arrogance. Now, let me explain 
why this might be, why this is the case. Emotions, we didn't talk about this last week. Emotions themselves have a language all their own, right? Every emotion you feel is actually saying something. And so when it comes to anger, all the varieties of anger, right? Of all, and anger has a lot of different diffuse views, right? From the, from the heroic stands against political tyranny to the all-too-common petty arguments around the kitchen table, right? To the um, volcanic chemical reaction explosion types to the slow crock pot ready boil just sitting there seething type. To the person who takes a flamethrower to anyone's near him, to that person with the heart of ice and he just gives the cold shoulder. These are all very different responses and actions, but they're all within the spectrum of anger. And every one of those shares the same core message. In all those actions and all those responses, the same message that anger is saying is that something is wrong. Life is wrong. I am against that. In every expression of anger, that's the common denominator because that's the emotional language of it. I'm against this. Something's wrong. Life is wrong. In the same way, and we talk about this next week, anxiety is saying life is out of control. And we'll unpack that next week. In the same way that escapism is saying life is hard. So, so all of our emotions are saying something. And anger is saying, something is wrong, and by me acting out in my anger, whatever that might be, standing out at a political protest, standing in front of a, of a communist tank, right, arguing around the kitchen table, I am acting out in my anger to change something. Even the low-grade person who's grumpy in the morning, because mornings are wrong, and you shouldn't interact with me in the morning. So I'm going to be grumpy, so you catch the hint, and you stay away, and I have my comfort in the morning. They're saying the same thing. Something is wrong. I'm against that. So the real question you have to ask when it comes to anger is this. Is the perceived offense, insult, or slight real, or is it imagined? And is your response appropriate? You see, the, the simple question, what is anger, becomes complicated because the emotion is simultaneously just and corrupt. And it happens both at the same time. And that should make sense. If you're a Christian, you understand why. We are, redeemed, we are made in the image of God, but scarred because of the fall of sin. So anger is an emotion from God, as I spoke of last week, all our emotions, to energize us to do what is right, to make right, and fight for justice and mercy, but the emotion has gone horribly wrong because of sin's deforming power. I hope that makes sense. Let me read to you um, probably one of the most brilliant psychologists who ever lived. Um, you wouldn't know him because he's, he's a Puritan preacher, Right? So, and the Puritans were the best psychologists ever around. This is his book, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Thomas Boston writes this. The natural man's affections, we talked about that word, it's, it's, it's our, a deep sense of our emotions, are wretchedly misplaced. He is a spiritual monster. His heart is where his feet should be, fixed on the earth. 
His heels are lifted up against heaven, which is where his heart should be set on. His face is towards hell, his back is towards heaven, and therefore God calls him to turn. He loves what he should hate, and he hates what he should love. Joys in what he ought to mourn for, and mourns for what he should rejoice in. Glories in his shame, and is ashamed of his glory. Abhors what he should desire, and desires what he should abhor. Man's natural affections is an emotional monster. Wow. Do you ever really want to read penetrating psychology? Read Puritans, right? Because what is psychology other than theology personalized? And, and they did a great job of that. So this emotion of anger is given to us by God as a reflection of his character to energize us, to act for what's right, for mercy and goodness, the right and true and beautiful, but it's all deformed, and because of sin, we are deceived into thinking we, you and I, are the determiners of what is right, true, good, and beautiful. And guess what? 95% of the time, we get that wrong. And so anger goes really bad. And so often what we think is wrong and the actions we're energized towards, it's not God's glory or his will or his purposes or the good and dignity of others. It's for our vain glory, our reputations, our pride, our perceived needs and wants and desires. And so what God gave us to help us fight for what is good ends up being used for what is horrible and hurtful and painful and evil more often than not. Why does this happen? So, so, so if anger is actually a good thing, it's, 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 it's a gift from God, why is it always going sideways? Why is it when we think about anger, it, it's not as the emotion of justice, right? It's not as an agent of mercy. It's not as the, the guardian of all that's right, true, and beautiful. Why do we think of it in just the negative? So then for that answer, we have to ask the question, then why do we get angry? And that's our second question this morning. Why do we get angry? And there's a great text I want to take you to. It's in the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll have it on the screens. And, and I'm applying it to our emotions but the prophet, God speaking to the prophet, this is just, beautifully summarizes the human problem. And it applies to our emotions as well. So this is what God says in Jeremiah 2 verse 13. For my people, he's speaking about Israel, and by way of application, people who are believers in the New Testament. My people have committed two evils. Two evils, here they come. Number one, they have forsaken me. And then he defines who me is, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the two evils that all of humanity, God's people, are guilty against is a forsaken God, right, the fount of living water, and they're turning these broken cisterns that, that don't, they themselves don't hold water. What God is saying is that humanity is always looking for these God replacements. So let me tease this out. So typically... Typically when we get angry, what do we tend to blame, right? Usually external situations, circumstances, things that trigger us, right? Your demanding boss, traffic, an uncooperative coworker, an unsupportive spouse, a self-willed child, a long stoplight, the rude barista, your, your CrossFit class got canceled and you didn't know, right? All, we, all these things outside of us get us mad. Amen? Amen. 
But, you know, the Bible teaches us that we will never understand anger that way. If we keep thinking the things out there is what's getting me mad, we'll never understand anger. In fact, the Bible counsels us to do the exact opposite. The Bible says, look inside. This is what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Good question. Is it not this, that your barista got your order wrong? Nope. Is it not this, that you have a demanding boss that's hard to work for? No. You guys get where I'm going with that. What does James say? Your passions that are at war within you. Notice the, the, the psychological insight James here is saying. He's saying you're losing a fight inside before you lose it outside. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Friends, this is a fundamental biblical truth and principle. To understand your anger, to start to understand why it's there, how to use it, how to change it, how to repent from it, why you get angry is to examine your own heart. Whenever you get angry, whatever variety you choose to be a go-to person, maybe you're just the one that's constantly irritable, argumentative, bitterness, outright violent person, or the passive anger, you know, the cold shoulder kind of thing, self-righteous anger, whatever. The way you start understanding that is you have to look inside. Jesus was very clear. Anger comes from within us, not from outside of us. If you suffer from anger, it's not because you got a disorder somehow. In one sense, you did. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's called disordered love. You put your heart in the wrong place. Unless you're first willing to examine your own heart, the Bible says you'll never understand anger itself. You'll never understand why you get angry. You'll never be able to cultivate it correctly or change and you'll never understand how anger can actually be something good. So what I want to do now is I want to connect our biblical theology of what we're talking about here from Mark 7, James 2, to that great definition that we got earlier, that, that anger is an emotional response um, to perceived wrongs. So here's, a, here's a connecting what we're seeing in the scriptures. Anger is the result of misplaced worship. Or, and really it's the same kind of concept, anger results when our loves are disordered. Let me explain that. The Bible clearly teaches when we worship anything more than the Lord our God, the Bible calls that idolatry. In other words, misplaced worship, which is the definition of idolatry. Idolatry, if you're not aware of this concept, an idol is anything that we are deriving our life from, our sense of identity, what's important. The Bible makes it very clear that we are to derive that from the Lord God himself, the fountain of living water, but we turned our backs on him, and we try to get life from these broken cisterns that actually can hold no water. And that idol, those idols, they can be um, very concrete. Your brand new car, your house, your health, your good looks, maybe a new motorcycle, for example. It can be something very concrete. It also can be something very abstract. Your sense of confidence, your sense of identity, um, being accepted, being approved, being loved. 
So idols can be very concrete objects you can point to, which is the kind of definition we're very calm understanding with, or it can be a very abstract concept. But we have derived our sense of self from that idol rather than from God, who should be where we get our sense of self from, our confidence, our security, our esteem, our, our, our approval, all those things. We've taken it off him and put it on something else so that my idol, my sense of self comes from my, my, uh, my health, my, my youth, my good looks. I don't mean my good looks, but you get what I'm saying. And so you will fight tooth and nail against anything that challenges that. And so if your kids' needs get in the way of you having to go to the gym, you start to get upset. Why? Because you got to get that idol served. Because idols are demanding. So that, that, that's what we're talking about here. Or disordered loves. You know, I was thinking about this week. And if, I'm, if anyone's got a counterexample, give it to me because I'd love to hear it. But I think you can make the case that every... Aggression, injustice, evil, heartbreaking tragedy we hear about is the result of a disordered love. Whether that love was, I, I love this woman more than anything, and if I can't have her, no one can, including her new boyfriend, and off goes you know, the gun. Love of nation. I love my nation more than anything else, and anyone who's not part of my nation is not worthy of anything love of family. That's why it's so hard to see because it is a veneer of love, a desire for something, but love is not inherently by itself good. It's only as good as the object of that love in which it's placed, which is why the scriptures always say, what's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before the Lord because anything else you put your love in, your life will be disordered in service of that love. And only loving God fully will keep every other love in balance. And so our anger results when one of these things take place. And so if I can use the idolatry metaphor, you get angry, practically speaking, because someone or something just kicked one of your idols over. And you say, that's wrong, and I have to defend it. Let me illustrate it. Anyway, I think you might understand. So when I was a uh, star off in youth ministry years ago, I was the youth pastor, and then within about less than two years, I also became the senior pastor, but because the church was in such a wreck, we didn't have the money for a new youth pastor, so I was both youth pastor and senior pastor. Preached two sermons every Sunday, three different services. It was a crazy time in life. I had three kids under five, right? So I come home from a very busy season of life, and, and I want what? I want, I want to just un unplug, I want to decompress, I want some comfort, I'd like some food, and so when I come home, is my beautiful wife sitting there with kids in order, dinner, waiting for daddy? No, right? As soon as I walk through the door, she hands me snot fang, right? That's what I named my, my, my firstborn, because he'd always had snot right here, and he's kicking and feeling his, his feet, and with one foot, he kicks over comfort, the other foot, he kicks over my desire for a, for a meal, and my wife says, you're home. I need to rest and do all this other thing. And off she goes. And I get mad. Because Snot Fang, <laughs> you, you don't tell him I told you that. Um, <laughs> he kicked over my idol of comfort. Now, let me clear. Is, is it wrong to come home and want comfort? Is it wrong to want to come home and decompress after a hard day? Is, is it wrong to have a little me time? 
Some of you Christians are like, well, I don't know. We're not supposed to have me time. Christians are self-sacrificial. No, it's okay. Those are gifts from God. We'll talk about that in week three. But what it did happen was that good gift from God was a disordered love because now I wasn't loving God more. I was loving coming home and unwinding. I, I, it wasn't God in my heart. It was this idol of, I just want a meal and I'll watch TV. I'll watch Lost. That just came out back then. And I got angry because those idols got kicked over. That's how it works in our hearts, friends. Now, I have grown, I think. This past March, needed to take some time off. I shared this story. Three days off from work, with a kickback. David Erickson was preaching for a missions conference, and I ended up serving jury duty the whole week. Remember that? So, but I didn't lose it. I was cool. I was like, Lord, you have me. You want me to serve now, and you will give me the grace to get through this. My point is, I just want to show you how those dynamics work in our heart. God becomes angry. He is angry. Let's be clear on that. But the result of God's anger is a result of his holiness and love. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. Usually the result of our anger, however, is pride and self-interest. Here's how this works. A big element of anger, right, that we all recognize is this emotion to make things right. We all agree with that. But what we often don't realize that our very criteria of what is right, when, and in appropriate times is itself skewed by sin. And so what happens is we begin to elevate our own experiences, our own position, our own preferences, our own wants and needs, and we elevate them, and it feels so right. And we don't even realize how wrong it's gone because the very filter we're using is skewed by sinfulness. And so we just have conflict waiting. In James, um, James chapter 3, I want to go there. You can go there if you want. James chapter 3. James is pastoring this church, and they're just cantankerous. They're fighting with each other, as you read. And I'm not sure if murder was hyperbole or those actually was taking place, but they were out of control, right? It was a Christians gone wild kind of situation. And James is trying to help them navigate. And so before he talks about what we read in chapter 4, he's talking about wisdom. Godly wisdom, earthly wisdom, and I think you can extrapolate some principles of anger management based on what he says. Let me just read a few verses, and we'll unpack it. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By their good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he goes into saying, so what causes these quarrels and fights among you? So I think what we can see is James is saying to us, okay, how does godly anger work? What does it look like? Couple things, couple notations there. Number one, godly anger seeks peace. You, you know your anger is in check when your goal is to bring people together to understand, not to divide them. That's a real important point. Godly anger, the manner of it is gentle. In other words, that is to say it's open to reason. You may actually see things that are wrong, that need to be made right. But you have this gentle demeanor knowing that you yourself, you might see things that are true, but you're also aware you may not perceive things correctly because of sinfulness in your own heart. 
And so there's a humility as you approach the situation. There's mercy. You're not out to prove people are wrong and how, how dumb they are, or how they don't get it. You, you, you want to bring understanding to the situation. And, and there's good fruits, a harvest of righteousness that comes from that. And I'm surprised how often mature Christians totally misunderstand what godly anger might look like. I was in a situation months ago and there was conflict, so we had to kind of do some reconciliation. We started the meeting. I said, look, here's how my sin contributed to this problem. Here's where I sinned. I didn't take this into account. And you know, got that out. The principle Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you, or the speck before you take out the log in your brother's. Or, excuse me, got that backwards. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so the second person says, same thing. This is how I sin. I, I felt like you were intimidating my situation. You were kind of, it just, it was a beautiful picture of this person's like clinging to the cross, not their pride or their achievements or whatever, and just confess it. So we looked at this last, the next person. Well, I guess here's how I got it wrong. I was just being too much like Jesus. I just wanted to serve so much and you wouldn't let me serve. So I guess I'm out of here because that's not what you guys want. You don't want me to be like Jesus. <laughs> like, What? The thing is, this person would, was a believer for like two decades. And I'm thinking about James, like, the, the, where's the, I want to come together. I want to come to an understanding. How do we work together? How do we do something where we're better for this? But they're like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. And since I'm right, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm out of here. That's not godly anger. Let me read this quote because it's, it's beautiful. Quickness to anger as a whole indicates a general state of discontent. But now quickly, as I read this, you're probably thinking the, the chemical reaction flamethrower volcano type, right? Just lose their heads. But quickness to anger also refers to those passive-aggressive angry types that are quiet, that stuff it all down and just seethe on the inside. So you're not off the hook just because we can't see your anger. It applies to all of us, right? This quickness to anger as a whole indicates a general state of discontent, fear, and pride in life. If we tend to be quick to anger, then our baseline emotional temperature is probably far higher than it should be. Like a pot of water, quick to boil, is probably at a temperature near boiling point already. This is not a good place to be, right? Spiritually, um, relationally, even physically. Uh, because our emotions, and anger in particular, remember energizes us to action and if you're always at a state where anger is just right under the surface you are going to wear yourself out it's kind of like riding the brake in your car you're going to wear it out prematurely which is why studies are showing that in a lot of situations of both physical like high blood pressure to mental health issues anger is a part of the equation it's for this very reason anger was given to us to energize us to act but if that's where you're living all the time, not a good place. So, so let's unpack this. How do we work, do something with this? Friends, follow the anger to the affections and desires of your heart. Now, I realize when you're in a situation and you're just having an argument or whatever, it's hard to do this. I'm speaking to you. If you want to grow, understand your anger yourself and change and be more constructive with it, this is, this is the thing you do. After the blow-up or the cold shoulder, whatever you do, whatever your style is, follow that string to the affections and desires of your heart. That string will always, I know you're not supposed to say always, but it will always be tied to one of two things. 
that string will be tied to one of two things. It will either be wrapped around God's glory, His will, His purposes, others' good and their dignity, or an idol that was just kicked over in your heart. Identify that desire that did not get met. And ask yourself, was I angry because God's glory was besmirched? God's will was violated? God's purposes were opposed? Was I angry because the dignity of others was mistreated? Or others were, the good of others was trampled upon? Or was I angry because something I wanted, just because I wanted, I didn't get? Let me just answer that question for you. About 98% of the time, it's going to be the, the latter, not the former. It's because of selfish desire, an idol in your heart, a disordered love, got squashed on or kicked over. So how do you find that idol? Here it is. It's a little homework, I guess. If you fill in the blank of this question. How do you find the idol in your heart? You answer this question. I am angry because I love blank. That's how you find the idol in your heart. I am angry because I love blank. And in the case of the situation I explained, when the person said, I am angry because I love Jesus, that does not work, all right? <laughs> I am angry because I love blank. So I was counseling a couple, and they're having problems. I'm angry. He didn't say it this way, but basically it was this. I am angry because I love dinner at 6 p.m. sharp, and I never get it. I work hard. I come home. By the way, that was not me saying that from the story I just shared. Just, okay. Although I could have said that. I'm angry because I, don't ha I love dinner at 6 p.m. Now, that does sound a little bit odd, right? It does sound odd. And that's because in our counseling classes, we talk about the complexity and diversity of idolatry, but it works like this. You always have a surface idol. In this case, it's dinner at 6 p.m. I come home, I'm hungry, I want my dinner, right? But it sounds odd because that surface idol is only the mask of the deeper idolatry. And that is, dinner at 6 p.m. represents that you respect me do you acknowledge how hard I work to provide for this family? So when you changed it to, I am angry because I love respect, oh, it makes a lot more sense now. And the anger, when you don't get your respect, will show itself in 10,000 other ways than not just getting dinner at 6, 6 p.m. sharp, whereas not getting dinner at 6 p.m. sharp, you could care less depending on the situation. But you see how important that is. And so often we're out of touch with that. And so we're arguing about the surface idolatries. And that's good. Start there. But you follow that string. Because what happened consistently in this man's understanding, this idol of respect, boom, his wife kept knocking down. Or he perceived that. She kept knocking it down. And that's what he loved. And he was defending it and saying, that's wrong. I'm against that. That's how these things work. So we have to find out that you have to realize that your anger shows a passion for something. What is that something? Is it God's glory, his will, his purposes? Is it the good and dignity of other people? Or is it your pride, your vainglory, your, your desires, you? Now, if anger is an emotion that is capable of doing good, a lot of good, but mostly goes horribly wrong, how then should we be angry? And that's what we're going to do. That's our last question this morning. I hope it's clear that when it comes to anger, 
I hope it's clear why the, the cultural responses are not sufficient, right? It's not about just managing it. It's not about uh, simply diffusing it. It's, it's not about embracing it. It's about repentance. It's about redemption, redeeming it. it to get angry, for to, un, to get anger, really get anger, we have to get God. Because the Bible tells us that God is always angry. He is justly angry all the time against sin, evil, impurity, cruelty, injustice, and it ticks him off. It's not the way you and I get ticked off in our sinfulness, but he is seething against it. Now, you might be like, oh, I don't want a God like that. Yeah, you do. Because if you don't understand that anger, then let me put this out there, you probably don't understand love. Because I love my family. And if anything tries to hurt and ruin them, I will come against that thing with all the strength my Creator gives me, and you would do the same. You see, anger is actually connected to love. The problem is, the reason that statement seems so bonkers is because we're so totally obsessed with self-love. And God's love is selfless and caring and good. But unless you're really going to understand the, the actually power and good of anger, you've got to understand God, who's always angry because there's so much evil and sin in the world. And you are a reflection of that. But this is why the disordered love things comes into play, doesn't it? Even though you might come against my family, that doesn't justify radical behavior on my part. We'll unpack that a little bit, but that's the point. If, if I love God, I'm going to love my family, but I'm not going to love my family more than I love God because if I do that, I'll, go, I'll be a wretch. I'll be the spiritual, emotional monster Boston was talking about. You will too. That's why the Bible's always talking about it. That's why God's always saying, put me above everything else. That's the only way you're going to flourish because every other thing you want to love will actually ruin you. So let me give you a, a practical definition of righteous anger versus sinful anger. So if you haven't figured it out already, righteous anger occurs when God's glory, will, or purposes are violated, attacked, or opposed. That's righteous anger, right? By contrast, sinful anger occurs when your glory, will, or purposes are violated, attacked, or opposed, real or imagined. Godly anger. We talked about emotional health. We talked about, do you want to guarantee emotional health? This is it, right? This is the core of this whole series. To the degree you rejoice over the things that God rejoices in and you grieve over the things God grieves in, to that degree you will have emotional health. To the degree that that's not the case, you will not have emotional health. Godly anger has, and we talked about emotional health being the right emotion at the right time and the right intensity and in the right response, right? And so in the same way, godly anger, it's the right desire. It's God's glory, His will, His purposes in the world because He is the ultimate moral good for humanity. Sinful anger, by contrast, is all about me or what I think. Godly anger has the right appraisal, right? Is it sin? Is it sin or not sin? Whereas a sinful anger, it's really not about a, it's not a sin issue. It's what do I prefer? What, what, what do I expect? My expectations weren't met, right? That, that's the majority of where our misunderstandings and frustrations and anger can come from, missed expectations, uh, legitimate or not. And then finally, right response, 
Right? So you, you might assess the situation correctly. It might be sin, but if you blow your top in some self-righteous tirade, you, you didn't do it right. right. Because godly anger seeks to redeem and bring together and bring that correction that's beautiful. Sinful anger, by contrast, is about retribution and punishment. Right? I'm going I'm to fix your wagon. I'll show you. Praise the Lord, because I'm a good Christian. I'm going to do this and make you see your sin. That's totally bonkers. All three of these, the right desire, the right appraisal, the right response, have to exist. To the degree that one of these are missing, your anger is, is more into sinful anger. James 1.20 tells us the anger of man does not bring the righteousness of God. And so we need to be real careful of that. How to get angry, friends? Tie your emotions to God's. Rejoice what, rejoices, what he rejoices over, grieve what grieves him. So when it comes to anger, I hope it's clear. Um, we don't just need help. <laughs> we need rescue. Paul, writing to the Colossian church, says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. I love the vivid imagery. This kingdom of darkness, he's delivered us into the kingdom of the Son in which he loves. It's not just a little help, a little, you know, a little mojo to get you going. You need rescue, man. You need to be taken out of one kingdom and brought into another. The great thing about anger, too, though, is anger is a great spiritual diagnostic tool. If you're willing to let it be, anger is a great spiritual diagnostic tool if you're a Christian, or really not, because it really reveals who your Lord is. So here's a great homework for you. Answer this question. Does your anger show that God and his glory, his will, his purposes, the good and dignity of others rules your life? Or does your anger show your glory, your will, your purposes, and the good and your dignity rules your life? Now, here's the trick with that question. It's a trick question here. You can't answer the question. You, you, because, because that Thomas Boston thing, your filter is already skewed. So you can't ask yourself that question. But you know who you can't ask? You can ask your husband or wife. You can ask your kids or your friends who, who love you well. They can tell you the answer. Now, if you really want to get meddling, but pastors do, if you're sitting there saying, I'm not asking that question, there's a good chance you already know what the answer is. And it's the wrong answer. And there's work to be done. The great thing is, friends, Psalm 103.10 teaches us that God, he's like spectacularly unfair. God has no category for fairness, Right? Psalm 103.10, he says, I do not treat you in the manner that your sins deserve. But James 4 says, but I give grace and more grace to you. I'm so glad that God doesn't trade in what's fair. God's just in the mercy. And he gives us that grace. It's called forgiveness. A relationship with him. Friends, and that's possible because Jesus Christ took the full, holy, horrible, purifying, perfect anger of God upon himself so that all of our sinful expressions of anger don't have to have the last word. We can be different. But we have to let go of the idols that grip our hearts and our affections that prevent us from loving God and others more than ourselves. Are you willing to do that? And can I just say as a 
as a recovering anger addict, it's so worth it. If God's grace towards you has the final say in your life, your anger will be tempered by mercy and gratitude and can actually be something uncommonly good in your life. When it comes to anger, friends, it's not about our stoic control. It's not about therapeutic management. It's not about sinful self-expression. It's about repentance and redeeming this emotion so that it can be used for the good that God gave it to every one of us in this room for. But like all of our emotions, the only way for that to happen is if we have to submit to the lordship of Christ in our lives. If that hasn't happened, you will be an emotional wreck. You'll hold it together here and there, but as a general course, your life will be an emotional wreck. And so one of the benefits of being a Christ follower is emotional health because we are made more and more like Jesus Christ, who always experienced the right emotion at the right time, in the right intensity, in the right way. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that you would forgive us because we are an angry people. Father, we ask that you would forgive us because we are not an angry people. We get, lose our temper over things we shouldn't, and we're callous and unmoved by things we should. We're just in need of grace, and we thank you that the Scripture promises us you give us more grace. We need that, and we ask you to give us grace so that we can be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org. Dot org.